From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today we'll explore the rise in dating app usage and learn about the downfalls and benefits of being on them. Then we'll learn about Milwaukee's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute as it celebrates 40 years. I don't know that I fully paid uh, as close attention in school as I should have, but here you really get to choose from the topics that you're really interested in in a nice, compact, 75-minute lecture. Plus, we'll explore some of the Wisconsin restaurants nominated for this year's James Beard Awards, including a restaurant within a restaurant, Esther Ev. People sit there and they're like, oh, eight-course chef's tasting menu. I have to get super dressed up. I have to be this way or that. And Esther Ev doesn't quite feel that way. It's like the comfortable eight-course <laughs> chef's tasting menu. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here's today's headlines. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM at Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. Blind dates, coffee shop run-ins, and grocery aisle prolonged eye contact may be the meet-cute stories of the past. More people are turning to online spaces to find that special someone. Tinder and Bumble were the most downloaded apps of 2021. Now, over 300 million people are using dating apps worldwide. 20 million of which are even paying for premium features. But what happens when we let the algorithm play matchmaker? And who's profiting off of our quest for love? To discuss what dating looks like in the age of swiping left and super liking, Lake Effect's Kate Flynn sits down with Mark Tasman, the Director of Digital Arts and Culture at UW-Milwaukee. In today's digital age, dating and love in general look a lot different. Millions of people around the globe are now using these dating apps. So I was wondering if you could give us some insight as to how these apps are organized and whether or not it's more difficult to achieve these personal relationship goals rather than in person. Full disclosure, I don't use the dating apps. My father-in-law suspiciously asked me, what do you know about dating apps? <laughs> but you know, part, part of what I do is study the internet and teach about the internet. Um, and these dating apps are set up uh, much the same way that lots of other social media uh, sites are set up. They're either subscription-based or revenue-based. And so their goal is to, to make money. You know, when a new dating app pops up and promises a, a kind of a, a new community or a, a kind of a niche um, community of people, what they're really doing is trying to peel away market share from the, the biggest companies. Um, that doesn't benefit uh, meeting a relationship goal. What it does is it keeps us interested and um, you know, captures our attention on on the apps themselves, um, rather than having uh, the other person or what they do or think or feel uh, capturing our attention. Right. And that's not entirely new, I don't think. Uh, one of the main business models that uh, we see social media use is almost getting people addicted to these apps. Uh, do you feel like there are addictive qualities that have transferred over to dating apps? Oh, for sure. What we understand about getting likes or, you know, getting any kind of message is that it, it triggers a kind of dopamine response. And researchers have known for a long time that intermittent reinforcement works just like a slot machine, even though you know the odds are against you uh, in terms of, uh, you know, pulling 
you know, pulling the arm on the slot machine or refreshing your, your feed to get what you want, you still do it because once in a while you get something, you know, you get a new message or you get a, you know, a positive, positive reinforcement. So, I mean, that, that's my main concern about the, the apps is that they are designed like games that we play winning on the app might be, you know, uh, creating a match, but that's not necessarily winning in life. As these apps are becoming more gamified, like you're saying, how do you think it's altering the way that we see relationships in general? Like, are we starting to see people as props or as methods for us to win the game? Well, you know, as um, a good friend of mine got on Tinder last summer and I, we were on a road trip together. And so I literally went along the journey with him of him setting up his Tinder profile. Was this idea? idea you know is very strong that that there was something to play here but uh we noticed right away that it's like the game forces you to be a, a, the type of person who you might not be in a real life um kind of person to person physical situation we all know this from um you know you don't have to be on a dating app to know this anybody who has lived through the pandemic and had a virtual meeting or had a you know, Teams or Zoom meeting, it's like, oh, uh, there's something missing. So without this physical connection that we're not having with people, which most of us have experienced because of the pandemic, like you said, um, how do you think that the dating scene being transferred over to mainly digital spaces is going to the affect the way that we can connect with someone or build relationships? Well, that's what's so um, interesting to me you know, the idea that we could ch simply change the nature of, of what it means to be in a relationship, you, you know, it's very possible that, that these apps would change that. We know this already, that communication has changed and dating coaches um, are um, shifting and pivoting towards um, actually teaching people how to text, how to, you know, communicate clearly. So you go on a date, you think the date went well, and you're, you're chatting with the, the person who you uh, had this encounter with, and they're being very vague. And you don't know how to interpret those messages. And you don't know exactly what what to say back. You know, that's just a piece of it is like, how do we communicate? Even when we are in a relationship, or think we're in a relationship, or whether we're we don't think we're in a relationship by the by these other kind of um, standards of intimacy. If you make a connection, you're you're relating to another person, and that that relationship is um, filtered and mediated by this new technology. Hundred thousands, tens of thousands year old brains haven't yet. We haven't wrapped our minds around how to process that. This is all sort of in an evolutionary sense, very, very new technology, very new way of communicating. Right. We've touched on this a little bit throughout the interview, but for a long time, it's always either been friends or family or shared experiences that have connected us to others. So my question for you is what happens exactly when we let the algorithm play matchmaker instead of the people in our lives? Right. So the, you know, those communities are not just like how we meet each other, but those, those community of friends and family are how we support each other. Like when we hit bumps, you know, when there, when there's trouble or, or uncertainty or unexpected 
things happen, right? We have a support network. One of the interesting um, studies that I was uh, recently looking at was that the rates of interracial relationships and marriages had increased, um, and that correlated with uh, broadband, uh, so internet uh, adoption. And so they, they were making the case that dating apps actually cause us to kind of blend and, and mix our old, you know, it, it reshuffles the deck. In other words, in, in terms of like who we used to hang out with and, and how we aligned our, um, our social groups. It's, I think it's also critical, important that our kind of respective support systems understand and also can relate to um, each other's support system. And without that, perhaps a bit, bit harder to, to maintain through, um, through bumpy times. If you feel like we're, you know, we're, you know, the two of us are alone in this together. Nobody un- understands us. It's just you and me and we're against the world and let's, you know, let's get on the motorcycle and ride. Well, and now I've seen even some of these apps that are smaller and more niche um, that have different takes on dating apps kind of popping up all over the place, like Taste Buds, which matches you to people based on the music you like or Chorus, where your friends can swipe on your behalf. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about the economic model behind these apps and why they're popping up all over the place? Just take Tinder, for example, because it's a... uh kind of mainstream dating app. Um, but what I understand is that there are, you know, there's free and then there's different tiers of a subscription model. And the the more you pay, the more kind of features you get. For example, if somebody swipes the, in the correct direction on you for a match and uh, you, you've already kind of swiped in the other direction, if you're able to pay more money, right? If you have this higher rate of subscription, you can actually see if somebody swipes right on you and then you go back and you can add them in. Whereas the lower models, you don't, you don't know if you missed, missed a connection. But essentially, most of the apps are relying on advertising, whether they're putting the advertising right in the app or selling your data um, in the form of cookies to other, to, you know, to Google or to Facebook, where those apps are going to pop up in your your kind of social media networks when you go online, they, the you know, the advertising will find you. So, and that is that's that's essentially the way that you know the the internet economic model works. Yeah, even when we think that we're not looking at the ad, there's something else in in our ecology, you know, on a on a web page somewhere that is going to Uh, find us and and push that to us. So there's a whole other market that's going on behind the scenes that's not just about us paying or us clicking uh, on on that one particular app, but little bits of uh, likes and dislikes that the companies are collecting, bundling and selling. Well, with all of that in mind and acknowledging that we are somewhat being exploited to a certain extent when we use these apps, uh, what do we have to keep in mind when we start to download and really engage with them? And do you feel like there are any apps that are necessarily better than others? Well, I think it's it's worthwhile to be critical. It's worthwhile to say, huh, I wonder why, you know, I matched with this person. And I would love it if everybody had a conversation like that every time somebody matched. Like, oh, we matched. Why do you think the algorithm matched us? you know, not, not just like, oh, we matched. Why do you think we 
matched. Like talk about the forces that were actually at work that 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 put you together because that that's really meaningful. And I think if if people can tap into those kinds of um, questions, that's that's really connecting on a deep level, and that's uncovering each other's value systems on a deep level rather than just being like, oh, cool, you like sharks, I like sharks. Let's spend our lives together, or you know, let's hook up just this once and never talk to each other again because of sharks. It's about human connection, and if if the the machines can help facilitate that, that's great. But we we have to to watch and ask and help each other. You know, say why, you know, have those conversations about why it is, and and yeah, you got me wondering, Kate, how it is that um, people might trust one app over another that says much more about that app or brand's particular marketing strategy this app uh dating app called hinge which is they market it as the dating app that's meant to be deleted so you're like oh that's brilliant i can trust them because they have my best interests in mind you know whether you want to call it addicted or uh dependent dependent on the uh the app itself um so that that's that's one thing to consider too is what what stories are the apps telling that they're telling a story as part of a marketing strategy. Mark Tasman is the director of digital arts and culture at the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee. He spoke with LikeFX Kate Flynn. You can find more about his takes on dating apps at wuwm.com. Did you know that you can listen to Like Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen to us on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Later in the show, we'll learn about the history of a Milwaukee park with one of the best views of the city, Kilbourne Reservoir Park. That story is ahead in about 15 minutes. But first, we'll learn about the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at UW-Milwaukee where there's the fun of learning something new without the homework. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Just because we stop going to school doesn't mean that we don't want to learn new things at any stage in our lives. The Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at UW-Milwaukee provides many opportunities for members to learn, from classes, interest groups, local tours, and even travel learning opportunities. Osher's learning community got its start here in 1982 and is specifically for adults 50 years and older. It's open to people from all educational backgrounds. The only requirement is a desire to learn. To share more about Osher and how they foster lifelong learning, I'm joined by its director, Sarah Grammer, and Greg Jenks, who's a member, presenter, volunteer, and the current president of Osher's Advisory Board. Sarah and Greg, welcome to Lake Effect. Thank, Thank you. you so much. So let's talk about Osher. The key words, lifelong learning, are especially important to note. So what is Osher and who is it for? Well, um, I'm the director at Osher. I've been here uh, since July of last year. And Osher really has three, I'd say three major focuses. One are our classes, uh, which are in person, largely at our Hefter Conference Center location on Lake Drive. 
and via live stream. We now offer pretty much all of our class content hybrid. So you can come and enjoy that in-person experience in the classroom or from wherever you're at. And that means we're bringing in members from even outside the Milwaukee area who are zooming in from Wauwatosa or even Washington State uh, if they love what's on the calendar this week. Uh, another area of programming are our Go Explorers. Those are opportunities to get out in the community with us, to visit local places uh, and sort of see Milwaukee from the tourist eyes, right? And those even go so far at times to be day-long bus trips. We'll go to Chicago and look at museums. Uh, we'll go up to Green Bay for the day if there's something special going on. In the fall, we were able to tie together a special program about uh, the conflict in Ukraine with a day-long go explore to the Ukrainian Museum in Chicago. So some really neat ideas uh, to learn more there. And then the third type of programming we do are our travel trips. And we've got an, a really fun one coming up May 6th through 9th to the state of Michigan, where we're going to see the Tulip Festival in Holland, Michigan, and then check out uh, the Greenfield Village and Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, and then see the Gerald Ford Presidential Museum and Library on our way home. Looking at some of the course catalog, there's uh, music that makes us smile, Milwaukee's women's liberation movement, golf play better with less stress, crime and punishment in the U.S., architecture for non-architects. I mean, these are just a sampling of some of the courses throughout uh, this catalog. And what I find interesting about this and intriguing is like, I miss school in the sense of learning something. I don't miss homework. Obviously, we don't miss paying for school, but this seems like the ideal way to like still be involved in not just the community, but keeping your brain active. Well, that's the beauty. There, there are no tests, no need to take notes, though some people do. And uh, yeah, I'm in the same boat. I don't know that I fully paid uh, as close attention in school as I should have, but here you really get to choose from, you know, the topics that you're really interested in, in a nice, compact 75-minute lecture. So like you say, we have everything from you know, music to history to uh, literature, to science. We've got a couple talks on the James Webb Telescope coming up. So there's really something for everyone, which was what really attracted uh, the organization to me. So this program is nationwide, the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, but the Milwaukee chapter has recently celebrated 40 years. What's been some of the growth and changes that stand out to you the most? I think the number one uh, recent area of growth has been offering all of our programs in person and live stream via Zoom. Uh, again, that just allows people to be able to enjoy our programs from wherever they are or whatever's going on. You don't have to let rehab, a broken leg, being out of state, an adjacent appointment stop you from getting in on these rich learning experiences. And Audrey, I just wanted to mention Osher. Uh, so that uh, is a reference to the Bernard Osher Foundation, uh, who we were um, able to get an endowment from, and that helps offset the cost of our programs. And so that's how we got the Osher label in front of our Lifelong Learning Institute, like so many, uh, I think it's 125 other chapters around the country. And uh, the wonderful thing about that is it really does help us keep our programs affordable. It's only $45 a year to be a member at Osher. 
actually right now it's only $30 for new members because just the spring and summer term are left in this program year. Our membership year runs uh, September 1 to August 31st each year, uh, including three great terms full of new classes. And then our classes uh, start at $10. So it's very affordable to, to get um, the kinds of classes that you're interested in. On the note of accessibility and outreach, I do want to talk about your core membership base. So it's considered for older adults, which is 50 and up for this group. But older adults are an important part of the community. But as people age, isolation is often common, especially once people retire. So how do you conduct your outreach to get people interested into incorporating this into their lives? Like especially if, say, they're not UWM alums or don't live on the east side by where you do a lot of the presenting. Uh, the organization really has relied on word of mouth, uh, pretty much. When I retired in 2017, I had never heard of Osher and luckily came across a little article in the Journal Sentinel about it. But for the most part, it's friends of friends who encourage people to, to join. Uh, we're trying more outreach efforts to make people more aware of it because I don't think we are very well known in the community. Uh, and one of the selling points, as you say, is the in-person classes and the ability to socialize. For me, the membership really took off once I got more into volunteering for the organization. When you go to classes, you know, sure, you chit-chat with people, but once you really start working in a group with other folks, you start building that peer group, and uh, that's where it really gets to be fun. That golf class that you mentioned, I'm one of the people teaching that, and the other four guys that I'm doing is that with are all guys that I met at OSHA and we have this similar passion for golf. So that's been a wonderful uh, reward. I, I have golf buddies now that I can go out with. <laughs> Post pandemic, we certainly don't have a big marketing budget. Uh, so the struggle to get the word out about OSHA is real. However, I think our members uh, do the biggest part because not only are they telling their friends how much they love the programs here, but they also create a consistently welcoming environment for um, anyone new who comes in the door. Uh, our team very much is focused on diversity and inclusion in our membership. And so, uh, you know, we're taking the flyers we have to local libraries and retirement communities. And we've done some outreach to local senior centers. So we're using our feet, I guess, so to speak, and uh, word of mouth to try to let people know how special these programs really are. Sarah, you mentioned that you recently started as the director of OSHA here in Milwaukee. So what drew you to this role in the work that the Institute does overall? Yeah, uh, I come from uh, five years uh, in Illinois overseeing a large senior center where we did some similar programming. And I was really attracted to this role when I learned about the history. You know, four decades of going from an all-volunteer senior guild to today you know, a membership organization with well over 1,200 members offering classes five days a week here in person and online. It was just a great opportunity to be involved in something that's well-developed, well-run, and growing. Uh, I was excited by the quality of the classes. We have retired professors, professors from other universities that come in and give their time, and people just in all sorts of specialty fields talking to us about the work they do 
uh, here in our community and the research that they, uh, you know, have published and been involved in. So the educational aspect uh, just really drew me in. I myself am a lifelong learner, uh, a huge library lover. I want to learn everything I can. And so to be part of that on a daily basis just really drives me. Greg, you mentioned you were a member, then volunteer, presenter, now you're part of the advisory board. Can you share a little bit more about what OSHER means to you or a program or event that really stands out that you would say encompasses the OSHER experience? Well, I think just in general, the volunteer experience. Uh, I worked for the Franklin Public Schools, and I always said teachers are good people uh, overall. And I think that's a similar description of our members. You know, we attract uh, lifelong learners, good, caring people. And so the ability to meet new friends uh, and engage with new people at my advanced age is uh, very exciting. And so to be able to work with them and, you know, find some meaning. The volunteers do a significant portion of the work for the organization, like bringing in all the speakers that you talked about. And so uh, you quit work and you're looking to find meaning in your life. And here's an opportunity to do that with a new peer group. So uh, that's overall what really sticks out for me. Sarah Grammer is the director of the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at UW-Milwaukee. Greg Jenks is the current president of their advisory board. You can find out more information about Osher, which is a part of UWM's School of Continuing Education, and the classes they offer at wuwm.com. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation you'd like to hear on Lake Effect, give our Community Connection Line a call. The number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. Coming up, we'll look at some of the restaurants nominated for this year's James Beard Awards and what makes their food award-worthy. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. The James Beard Awards are an annual celebration of food culture in the U.S. Every year, industry leaders throughout the country are nominated for national awards like Best Emerging Chef or Best New Restaurant, and regional awards honoring local chefs and restaurants. This year, there are Wisconsin-based semifinalists in six categories. To learn more about these restaurants and what makes them award-worthy, Lake Effect's Joy Powers is joined by Lori Frederick, the dining editor for On Milwaukee. So there are many restaurants that are being recognized by the James Beard Awards, uh, many of them in the Milwaukee area. And we're going to start with a couple that are up for national awards. The first is Buttermint Finer Dining and Cocktails. 
Yes. This restaurant group, which is comprised of Amy and um, Jason Kirstein, Joe Mensch, who is also their chef, and Dan Seidner, makes up Black Shoe Hospitality. Um, And that's the group that operates Blue's Egg and Maxi's and Story Hill BKC, as well as Buttermint Finer Dining and Cocktails, which just opened last January. So they've been around for about a year. And they are up in the semifinals for Outstanding Restaurant Tour. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're up against probably at least 20 restaurants across the country, which is kind of a big, a big honor. So I think people might be familiar with Maxie's Story Hill, maybe less familiar with Buttermint. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you're hoping to explore these restaurants, I guess I should say, uh, what are you going to find there? What what should people try? Yeah. Let's start with Buttermint because it's probably the least familiar. And Buttermint is probably a good percentage of the reason for this award because it strives to really encapsulate this idea of hospitality going back to the 1960s when finer dining really was born. It's got a lot of throwbackishness. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of nods to the 1960s in a modern restaurant, including the decor, the menu has a number of things. You know, you you will find little like older dishes, dishes you haven't maybe seen in a restaurant for a while that have been updated for the present moment. They also move toward a style of service that makes you feel special. I mean, there's little touches like, you know, a palate cleanser kind of in between. You know, if you do a first course and then your meal, there's a palate cleanser in there. And yet it's not, I would I would call it probably mid-range. You know, it's not fine, fine dining where you can only go there once a year. And then they do things like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays, they have something they call their TV dinner, which is pretty much a starter, an entree, and a dessert for us that price. Lots of throwback cocktails. Fun little place and very well executed. So the next space that we're looking at, it's a place with a lot of buzz. Again, I believe a national award for uh, Lupian Iris. Yeah. Lupian Iris, which opened the end of last summer, they are up for best new restaurant in the country. Um, And that's a pretty – I don't know that in recent years we've really had a restaurant – nominated in that category. And obviously the chef and co-owner for Lupia and Iris is Adam Siegel. He is no stranger to the James Beards. He won in 2008 for his work with Bertolata's Lake Park Bistro. So in some ways, I, you know, he knows how to tick off all the little notches <laughs> that you need. And I think when they built Lupia and Iris, they built it in a way where there was no detail unturned. I'm just atmospherically, the restaurant, it's, I mean, this is fine dining. It's opulent. You're not going to find white tablecloths because it's the modern version of fine dining. Definitely a special occasion place, but it's well appointed in its location downtown, you know, because they are open for lunch. They're open for dinner. They're open for brunch. The food is Mediterranean inspired countries, including France and Italy. So you'll find a lot of seafood a lot of fresh, kind of lighter dishes, along with a little bit of, of food from the French Riviera, Riviera, which gets a little bit a little bit heavier. Has made pastas also. I mean, the menu is large, and there's virtually something for everyone, from really heavy vegetable dishes or 
heavy on the vegetables, not heavy vegetable dishes, <laughs> um, to, you know, to seafoods. And then, you know, shareable steaks that are carved at the table for you, a bouillabaisse for two, things like that. For people who just want to go and check it out because it's worth going there just to sit and kind of take it all in, they did just launch a happy hour. Um, I think it's Monday through Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. So you can go in, sit at the bar, and kind of just, you can people watch. <laughs> you can look around. Take it all in. Definitely worth it. Yeah. So the next restaurant uh, I'm not actually familiar with. It's called Esther Ev, Esther Eve. Yes, Esther Ev. Okay. And Esther Ev is a restaurant within a restaurant. So it is inside of Dan Dan which is the Chinese-American restaurant yeah. in the Third Ward that's owned by Daniel Jacobs and Dan Van Wright. They are up for a Best Chef Midwest Award collectively as co-chefs. And um, they opened Esther Ev in homage to their grandmothers, Esther and Ev. <laughs> and um, it, Esther Ev is, is kind of an awesome concept, um, not only because it's small and intimate and a little bit hidden, like the speakeasy of restaurants, <laughs> but it's it's very private. Maybe there's room for 30 or 40 people in the space, um, and it's sort of set up with communal tables. So you kind of get to know the people around you. You have enough privacy where you can have a date, you know, and you don't need to feel obligated to talk to the people. But if you want to make friends with all the people at your table, um, it's very congenial. They only have service on Fridays and Saturdays, and it's in an eight-course format. So it feels very much like fine dining. <laughs> and all the, you know, the courses are actually well-sized. So by the time you get to your eighth course, you're satisfied. You're not stuffed to the gills, but you're also not looking for a place to go <laughs> because you're so hungry. There's also a, a real lack of pretense you know, for people, people sit there and they're like, oh, eight-course chef's tasting menu. I have to get super dressed up. I have to be this way or that. And Esther Ebb doesn't quite feel that way. It's like the comfortable eight-course <laughs> chef's tasting menu that you can, you know, definitely use as a special occasion spot. But it's also really accessible enough where you feel like you can go there multiple times, you know, with friends. It doesn't have to be a formal affair. You know, and there's th certain things that now that they've been around for a while that you'll find there, they've gotten to be really well known for their um, house-made tater tots, which almost always come with caviar, sometimes a little bit of foie gras, it just depends. Um, otherwise, you're just going to find really good seasonal dishes from fish to like house-made ricotta nudie and sometimes really Midwestern feeling dishes like a roasted duck with braised red cabbage. Uh, the next restaurant we're actually pretty close to at the moment, uh, this has been around for a while, Amalinda. Yeah, Amalinda, Amalinda is kind of remarkable because it was started by Chef Greg Leon, who is up for Best Chef Midwest as well, is in his second nomination this year. He came from San Francisco, visited Milwaukee, and literally fell in love with the town. I think he was definitely looking to make a move. As he would put it, he was really tired of just the style of, of dining and service in San Francisco where he had been. There was a lot of molecular gastronomy at the time, a lot of what he called tweezer food, and he was just tired of it. He's like, just his style is a little bit more rustic. 
um, a little bit more accessible. And so he came to Milwaukee and ate at places like Odd Duck and met and talked to other chefs and was shocked by the collegiality among the chefs here, fell in love and decided he was going to stay. And from there, I mean, he had a series of pop-ups, I think, that went on for almost two years, found a space for the restaurant, and now have to have been here for over five years. But his specialty is Spanish and Portuguese fare. And not everything on the menu screams Spanish or Portuguese. He has now kind of played with those flavors, but there's definitely a lot of influence from that. You'll find things like bacalao on the menu. Um, croquettes. So usually, <laughs> yeah, usually croquettes. He'll find, in fact, I think right now there's a vegan bacalao on the menu. So he's gotten kind of creative with that. And my, one of my favorite dishes there is the piri piri chicken, um, which takes the Portuguese piri piri. Delicious. I mean, just a little bit spicy. He'll make house-made Portuguese sausages, a lot of different things. The menu tends to be small. There's usually three, four appetizers, and then probably about the same entrees. But the menu also changes fairly frequently, um, at least once a week. So if you don't like what you see <laughs> one week, you know, something will look good to you the next. It's also very small quarters. It's a cozy little spot. There was a longtime downtown Thai restaurant. It's right on Wisconsin Avenue, which I think, you know, they were really trailblazers there. Amalinda is definitely, it's definitely an experience. It's very small, quaint, and I feel like the service is pretty personal. We're going to end with a restaurant, the only restaurant we're actually going to talk about, that isn't in the Milwaukee area. And it is the first time that there's been a restaurant from Door County uh, that has been up for a James Beard, it seems. Oh, absolutely. It is a, It is an absolute first for Door County. I don't think any of the restaurants there have ever been on any of these <laughs> lists, you know, let alone a semifinalist. But Wigan House is up for another national award, and that's Outstanding Restaurant. So that's a huge compliment, especially for a first. Um, they're in Ellison Bay, and the current owner, Mike Holmes, purchased the restaurant in 2012. And I think part of the attraction of this is that when he purchased the restaurant, he immediately started work on building a garden. And he's like, my goal for this place is for us to serve at least 50% of what's on our plates should be local from the peninsula. Now, that's a stretch because <laughs> Door County it's often called the Cape Cod of the Midwest, and, you know, it's known for its cherry orchards. But despite that, it's not great for most other agriculture. The soil is sandy. The weather is really finicky and unpredictable, so it can be pretty tough to grow a lot of things. But they were successful. They built a garden. They experimented a lot. And obviously, between 2012 and now, we've had a whole decade. They have now hired gardeners for their, their land. Their, their garden has grown. Door County has also grown. And I don't know if they're up to their 50% mark, um, but because most of Door County is seasonal, you know, you have the best of the growing season. You know, when, when the tourists are there, you really have the best of the Midwest harvest season. So they have been very, very successful in putting forward a local menu. And whether it's fish, you know, that's caught in Lake Michigan, surrounding um, the Dork County Peninsula, or things that were grown by them by them in their gardens, things that were grown by other farmers or that are at the farmer's market, they have been really, really true to that. So their menu is full of fresh seasonal dishes. Um, the dishes change all the time. And they have a team of chefs 
that work in the kitchen that brainstorm together. So you get a wide variety of things. You know, they, they look at what's fresh in the garden. And a lot of times there would be a special with that item, you know. And um, so they're constantly, constantly innovating and changing and evolving. That menu is never still. So a lot of great restaurants to try here in Milwaukee, of course, but also throughout the state. Uh, we haven't mentioned all of the places that are being recognized, but this is a great place to start if you're trying to get some award-nominated and occasionally winning uh, food. Lori Frederick is the dining editor for On Milwaukee, and she spoke with Lake Effects Joy Powers. At wuwm.com, you can find their previous conversations about restaurant closings and openings this year in Milwaukee. Bubbler Talk, quenching Milwaukee's thirst for knowledge. I'm WUWM's Emily Files. If you follow North Avenue east toward the lake, the road curves around a big hill. Last summer, Milwaukeean Mark Bihar decided to walk to the top. I hiked up the park and uh, was immediately impressed with um, the incredible and beautiful views of the entire city. The visit to Reservoir Park made Bihar wonder about its history. He submitted this bubbler talk question. What the significance of the reservoir was, what happened to it, and, and the basic question about its history, really. Kilbourne Reservoir Park is named after former mayor Byron Kilbourne, who deeded the land to the city. Brian Rothgary with Milwaukee Waterworks says it's a key part of the city's drinking water history. Kilbourne Reservoir was one of the first three original structures of the Milwaukee Waterworks. The about 25-foot-deep reservoir was built in the 1870s, along with the North Point Pumping Station and the North Point Water Tower. The system distributed Lake Michigan water through about 50 miles of pipes serving Milwaukeeans. Water was brought into the North Point Pumping Station from an intake in the lake, and there, from there it was pumped up the hill past the uh, water tower at the top of the hill up North Avenue through water mains and it would fill up the reservoir. And from the reservoir, it would flow into the distribution system by gravity. Gravity naturally creates water pressure, which is why the reservoir was built on the highest hill in Milwaukee. Ben Barbera with the local historical society says one of the very first things the water was used for was to brew beer. No surprise there. The very first customer was the Philip Best Brewing Company, which uh, is the predecessor to Pabst Brewing Company. For about 40 years, Milwaukeeans drank the Lake Michigan water untreated. Beginning in 1913, they started adding chlorine to the water to eliminate some of the waterborne diseases. That took care of disease, but uh, the water itself was cloudy, had an odor and a flavor to it. It's still occasionally fish would make their way through the system and into people's houses. A 1939 Milwaukee newspaper headline reads, City's sorry if you find fish in water. A school of perch were living in the Kilbourne Reservoir, and their progeny got sucked into the distribution pipes. The 21-million-gallon reservoir was open to the elements until 1979, when it was covered with a concrete cap. Why was it covered? Mark Bihar, the Bubbler Talk question asker, remembers hearing something about LSD. So there was a conspiracy at the time that thought that 
the leftists and the hippies were going to uh, poison everyone's water so everyone would have a, a good LSD trip. Historian Barbara and I searched newspaper archives, but we couldn't find anything about the LSD theory. The main concern may have been more mundane. One article says environmental agencies were worried about the reservoir's exposure to air pollution. By the later 20th century, Milwaukee had other water intake and storage facilities. Kilbourne Reservoir was kept in use for emergencies, but by 2004... The reservoir became redundant, and so as a cost-saving measure, they, they decommissioned it. The city filled the reservoir with soil and landscaped it with grass and trees. Brian Rothgary with Milwaukee Waterworks has lived near the park for 17 years. I walk here all the time. I, I come here and sit on the bench and look out at the lake and look out at the city. And there's really no other place like it. I mean, Milwaukee has a number of amazing parks, but there's no other park that has a view like this one. The elevation of the park, which made it a good reservoir in 1874, gives it one of the best views in the city today. Support for this season of Bubbler Talk comes from UW Credit Union. What do you want to know about the Milwaukee area? Submit your question at wuwm.com slash bubblertalk. You can hear Bubbler Talk every Thursday on Lake Effect and Friday during Morning Edition. You'll find out more information about Emily's story on Reservoir Park at wuwm.com tomorrow morning. And if you want to hear last week's episode about the fish that jump out of the Milwaukee River, that's at wuwm.com slash bubblertalk. And before we wrap up today's show, we're going to bring you a bonus Bubbler Talk. This one is for Black History Month. WUWM's race and ethnicity reporter Taryn Powell explains the history of the Jones Hill House. Bubbler Talk, quenching Milwaukee's thirst for knowledge. I'm Taryn Powell. One of our Bubbler Talk listeners asked about some of the Black historical sites in Milwaukee. There are many, and I chose to look at one that's had many lives, the Jones Hill House in the Harambe neighborhood. The building on North Palmer Street and its owners played key roles in the city's Black culture starting in the 1950s. The Jones Hill House looks like your standard arts and crafts style home. It stands three stories tall and is built of that classic cream-colored brick. The window trim and eaves are painted with rusted orange and white accents. Willie and Fostoria Jones bought it in 1953. They owned and ran entertainment venues in the historic Bronzeville neighborhood. It was established by black people who were confined to the north side of the city because of segregation. They formed a business district with social and professional clubs, financial institutions, and much more. The Joneses were part of that. Dinah Pencunis of the Wisconsin Historical Society says Willie Jones was born in Tennessee in 1896 and moved to Milwaukee in 1914. And he came to Milwaukee and worked a number of different kinds of jobs. But by 1940, he owned a pool hall on West Walnut Street. And he also really helped out other business people and established a number of other businesses in what was then known as Bronzeville. And one of the most notable of his uh, ventures was the Club Congo in the 1930s, which was a very popular club. Pincunia says Willie and his wife, Fostoria, also owned the Hillcrest Hotel, where Black jazz musicians would stay since they weren't allowed in white hotels. And the two co-owned the Casablanca, a rooming house and after-hours club in a converted mansion at 1641 North 4th Street. Billie Holiday, Louis Armstrong, and Duke Ellington were some of the acts that performed there. After-hours bars were popular in Bronzeville. 
When the Joneses bought what's now known as the Jones Hill House, they turned the basement into an after-hours bar. Their friend and business partner, Eva Hill, who ran the Casablanca, bought a portion of the house from the Joneses before taking full ownership. She rented out the basement for parties and later ran a rooming house there, too. Pincunis shares some of Hill's story. Eva was born in Arkansas in 1907, and she first moved to Chicago and came to Milwaukee about 1940. And she had worked domestic housework, but she very soon also became a businesswoman. And she really saw that owning a rooming house business was was a lucrative career. Oral tradition is that she started renting out her own apartment and then started looking to see how she could expand into a bigger rooming house business. Hill ran a social club called the Cream Mets on 4th Street until urban redevelopment forced her to sell her property to the city in 1967. She died in 1982. But her husband, Wiseman Keaton, still lived in the Jones Hill house and rented out rooms for about a decade. Pincunis says a fire in 1993 ended that. There was quite a bit of damage, about $20,000 worth of damage, and it stopped being a rooming house about that time. The house was repaired, but again, it wasn't operating in the same manner as it had before. The Keaton family sold the house to Calvin and Dorothy Greer in 1997. Six years later, they opened an art gallery there called the Greer Oaks Gallery. It featured works by Black artists, including from Milwaukee and from Calvin Greer, who was a well-known artist here. Greer died in 2007. A line from a tribute to him in the River West Currents newspaper reads, one of his passions was celebrating African-American history and culture by any means necessary. The Jones Hill House has been a place for Black people in Milwaukee to live, to socialize, and to experience art. And Black people made that space. So if you happen to be on the 2400 block of North Palmer Street, take in the site of the Jones Hill House. Now you know there's more there than meets the eye. Taryn Powell, 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. That encore bubbler talk wraps up Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Mallory Chang and Joy Powers join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Kate Flynn, Robert Larry, and Chase Browning. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Mayan Silver, Chuck Kornbach, Taryn Powell, and Emily Files from the WUWM News Team this week. Jason Reevy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. Join us again on Monday at noon to hear about how a group of local artists bought a city-owned foreclosed property in Bronzeville to create a live-in workspace. Plus, we speak with your personal astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. We talk about how to help adults get excited about science, plus learn about what his dream job would be if he couldn't study the stars. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.